0: listening to the Sunday Sermon Podcast of the Savior Community Church in Rockland County, New York. To learn more, go to SaviorCC.com. I said I had three, I wanted to do three passages that were near and dear to me, and then my schedule changed, and now I had to have a fourth passage that was near and dear to me. And uh, I was like, thinking about it, and I was like, wait, this is really obvious. Really obvious. We're having a baptism on Friday, and uh, one of my all-time favorite passages, one of my theological specialities, is Romans chapter six, uh, which is a passage that we get a lot of our, th- our understanding of what baptism is uh, directly from. And uh, in talking about baptism, we had our uh, membership class a few weeks ago, and we ha- have a section in there that we talk about baptism. And, uh, and then my son, Frankie, wanted to know more about baptism because he wants to get baptized uh, this coming Friday. And so we had a lot of discussions about it. And uh, so it's it's definitely, I mean, it's always fresh on my mind because of what what this topic represents. Uh, But this passage, uh, Romans 6, has had a hold of me now for many, many years. Uh, It captured my imagination years and years ago. Uh, Probably when I was a second second year in college. So I don't know, I would have been 20 years old, I guess, which is... uh, uh, getting closer and closer to 20 years ago <laughs> not there yet but getting getting close and uh, to some extent uh, I, I would say and, and there's a reason I'm saying this it's not a brag I'll just say this uh, to some extent I have an above-average grasp on this passage okay and by that I mean above average in terms of my academic understanding of this passage um, it's a passage I understand well enough that sometimes I'll read a commentary and correct the commentary on this passage. <laughs> okay. So this is like, when I say this is my theological speciality, it really is. I've done master's level work on it. It's uh, something that, that I, I know pretty well. I do think, however, and this is, this is I, I made the brag so I could humble myself. <laughs> I do think, however, that I've come to a place in my life where I'm ready to admit That despite having academic mastery over this passage um, it's humbled me in that i i never really felt like i put the full power or even a healthy fraction of the power of this passage uh, to work in my life and so for years i've struggled with it understanding it um, not never completely because it's so rich but understanding it at a very high level and yet Really wanting, hungry to see it, to see the promises of this passage fully take root and flower in my own heart and life. And so today as we come to it, um, I'm still wrestling with it and I want to take another crack at it with you. You guys have heard me talk about this passage very often I'll throw it into the middle of a sermon. I think I did like three weeks ago. <laughs> Where I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on the themes of this passage briefly and work through them. But I want to take another crack at it today. Looking at this passage, just this passage intensely. And trying to draw out uh, the, the power of this passage for you and for me afresh and in a deeper way. As I know as I begin a new season in my own life. Uh, looking to to step back from ministry one of the reasons i'm doing that is so that i can step closer to the lord and and that's that's true i i really feel um it was i this may sound really weird to some of you but for me it's sort of uh feels like one or the other at this stage it never should be like that but sometimes what should be and what is are very different right and so you say, well, this should be like this, or this should be like that. Oh, great, yeah, it really should be, that's awesome. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it is, right? And so at this point in my life, stepping back from ministry needs for me to be about stepping closer to the Lord in my personal life. And it's, it's amazing how convoluted those things can become. Uh, so I want to take another crack at this, looking at it as, as a foundational passage. And here's the thing, um, this aspect of the Apostle Paul's theology permeates his thinking, and i found is typically a little bit out of reach for most people in their theology. And I don't even mean most lay people. I mean uh, like, like even Christian leaders a lot really don't understand the full import, impact, the concepts that are in this passage. It's, it's, it's not that it's esoteric or hidden. It's, it's just that it, it requires that we step into Paul's head and try to think like him. And Paul was a person... This is always helpful. Um, You and I are not right now living in a rabid Holy Spirit revival. We may be someday where amazing, powerful, miraculous things are happening all the time and there's a massive move of God in our region or in some church we're a part of. Um, I I, I don't see that happening right now uh, in, in our part of America or in our branch of God's broad church. The Apostle Paul, however, his understanding of the person of the Holy Spirit, of life in Christ, everywhere he went, it was at the apostolic breaking of new ground. And so his ministry had sort of like um, a, a touch of Pentecost everywhere that it went. You know, often in, in school, students will hear stories about missionaries going, and there's so much power out on the field. And everybody will start, you know, the missionaries come into the, to the Christian college or the Bible college and talk about all the amazing miracles that are happening. And then the kids say, wow, something must be really wrong with the church because we're not like that right here. Well, historically, often when the gospel breaks into a new area, we see it come with great, tremendous power, or it doesn't break in at all. And so that's a pattern that you, not always, but sometimes we'll see. And the apostle Paul is an apostle, right? And so his life and ministry is sort of shaded by his, his experience of the Spirit of God massively breaking into people's lives and setting them free from the darkest brands of paganism. In our circumstance, we see people get set free. For most of us, our friends are you know, taxpaying, moral individuals who, uh, you know, haven't killed many people in their lives. Uh, We don't feel generally dangerous around them. They don't don't participate in human sacrifices or blood orgies or anything like that. And so, you know, when they come to Christ, you've got a, a, you know, a reasonably moral person having the light of Christ lit in their hearts and they are transformed. But it doesn't have the same flavor of being transformed from worshiping in a pagan temple and manipulating blood and stuff like that. It's just different. So the Apostle Paul and and those that he interacted with were accustomed to a massive transformation in a person's life. And accompanying that was, it's funny, because you think the next thing I'm going to say is, and everybody was just so holy right there. But you see in his letters that the, the pagans still dabbled in paganism and needed to be corrected like the Corinthians and stuff like that. And yet it was still so dramatic to turn from all of these gods turning to loyalty in Jesus. It's just a massive change. And so, all that to say, when we read the Apostle Paul, he's writing from a standpoint of a man who lives in, for lack of a better word, lives uh, with miracles all the time. All all of his work involves seeing people set free from raw paganism. All of his work involves uh, seeing people set free from the darkest. For us, it's not that we're not set free from paganism. It's that it's it's cleaned up paganism. It's not as obvious, right? It's not as big. Some of us would have called ourselves Christians before we were Christians because we were raised Christians, right? Air quotes, Christians. Anyway, you have to read Paul, not really making the point. You have to read Paul with an, with an understanding that he sees everything in light of the powerful work that the Spirit does in a person's life. That's all I wanted to say. So when he talks in Romans 6, about dying to sin and being alive in Christ, it's not theoretical. He's, he's envisioning that the Spirit of God comes into dead people and brings them back to life, shocks them into life. And where there was death and enslavement to sin, now there's freedom and power over the devil himself who would seek to control and destroy uh, every human person. And so in Romans chapter 6, the apostle Paul using baptism as shorthand, I'll explain that. Using baptism as shorthand describes what has really happened in the life of every person who's given his or her life to Jesus. And here's the thing, one of the re- one of the things with Romans 6 that's confusing, Paul talks about being baptized and he says, if you've been baptized into Christ, all these things happen to you. And people just get confused. They're like, well, when I was baptized, it didn't happen. Or I haven't been baptized yet. Or I was baptized when I was an infant, then I was confirmed. And they get all confused. He's talking about the real supernatural event that takes part in the heart of a person. So he's talking about a dry baptism. <laughs> or, a, or something that the Holy Spirit brings about in a person's life. So when he talks in Romans 6 about a person being baptized, what he's really talking about is... A person getting saved. It's not that you get saved when you get baptized. It's that when you get baptized, you're reenacting when you got saved. I always say it's like a play. A baptism is a play where you reenact your conversion in water. (laughs) Because why wouldn't we do that? That's awesome. (laughs) I got saved. Let's jump in a pool. Seems like something Jesus would do. Like the 70s Jesus, the one with the sandals. He was the fun one. I like to picture my Jesus in like a tattoo, t- uh, in like a, a, a tuxedo t shirt. Never mind. Because it's like it says I'm formal, but it also says I like to party. I'm sorry. You people don't have Netflix or anything? Come on, watch a movie. <laughs> I like the Christmas Jesus the best. Um, but let's get, let's get into this. So we look at Romans 6, our our title today is Baptized in Life. And here's the thing, whether you've been baptized in water or not, you follow me? Whether you've been baptized in water as an adult or not, if you have put your faith in Jesus, we can say you've been baptized in Jesus. That is, you've become united with him. You've been enveloped in him. You've been submerged in Jesus to the point where, uh, in your life, you don't know where where you you end and He begins. Your life has become saturated with Him. And I'm not saying, don't get me. I'm not saying you should be like that. I'm saying you are. If you've given your life to Jesus, that's who you are. Whether you consider that to be true or act on that or not, that's who you are. Because in this passage, you know what Paul does. He says, if you've been baptized into Jesus. The old man is is dead. You've risen to new life in Jesus. And then he says, so consider yourself that. Enforce that in your life. Dethrone sin in your life. See, many of us think this way. I've sort of started with Jesus. And uh, something else has to happen in order for me to go further with Jesus. Or I have to make something happen in, in order to have the fullness of everything that Jesus wants for me in my life. Paul has it the other way around. He says, you've got everything Now get it in your head that you've got everything. (laughs) It's like having a a big old bank account with a bunch of inheritance money in it, but no one told you which bank it's at or what the pin is. (laughs) It's yours. It belongs to you. You could spend it how you want. You just don't know how to access it. And what Paul's doing here, he's giving us the bank account numbers, He's giving us the pen. He's giving us the uh, uh, debit card so that we can access all the power that already has been credited to us that already has become ours in Christ Jesus. That's what Romans 6 is. It's saying, hey, you've given your life to Jesus. Guess what? You have a massive potential for holiness, for righteousness and joy in your life. And here's how you access that and make it real in your life. See what I mean when I say this passage has humbled me? That after exploring it and teaching on it a thousand times and studying it and uh, doing pa- papers, I did large papers in my master's degree on this. In fact, I would always find an excuse to go back to this passage because I had done so much work on it. So like I'd have another class and they'd be like, do, a, do a, uh, a paper on psychology and counseling. And I'd be like, you know, Romans six is really helpful for counseling. Like I, would, I recycled that thing so many times, man. I was like, this would really calm people down, don't you think? Let's look at Romans 6, open your Bible. You know, I was like, I, I did that constantly. I was the worst. <laughs> it's true. So, all right, so let, let's, uh, <laughs> let's get into this. So, we're baptized in life. Let's look at Romans chapter uh, 6, verses 1 uh, through 7. And our first point for today is live fuller knowing that you died. I'm going to give you all my points at once, right? all right? I don't usually do that. I want to t- cuz they kind of they fit together. Here's the three things we get from Romans 6. You can live fuller by knowing that you died. Doesn't sound very encouraging, but it is. You can live freer by considering yourself dead to sin. And you can live holier by presenting yourself to God. So these are things we have. We are baptized in the life in Jesus Christ if you've given your life to him. But we can live fuller, freer, and holier when we adopt this truth for our own and continue to explore it in our life. So let's, let's look at this, this first one. I've got to expand my points again here. First, live fuller by knowing you die. Let's look at Romans 6, 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Pause. <laughs> we got through verse 1. Here's, here's where we are. Paul, here's, here's what got us there. Why does Paul say that? Should we live in sin so that grace may abound? Paul has so thoroughly documented the reality that Jesus paid it all for us on the cross. That when Jesus died on the cross, if you put your faith in him, your sins, past, present, and future, are paid for and wiped out by the finished work of Christ on the cross. He, he offered himself as a propitiatory sacrifice This is Romans 3, which is like the nut of everything he's been talking about. He offered himself as a propitiatory sacrifice. A sacrifice of propitiation absorbs God's wrath, cleanses the believer from sin, and creates atonement between the sinner. Atonement means to bring at one, to put you together. And so Paul says Jesus offered himself as a propitiatory sacrifice, which paid the price of your redemption. That is to rescue you from sin's power and penalty so that you could be justified. To be justified means God has rendered a verdict over your life, a permanent verdict ringing through the heavens in his eternal court where he is supreme in authority. He's rendered a verdict over your life and has declared you righteous, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And so, because Jesus has paid the price of propitiation, which fulfills the cause of your redemption, which leads to your justification, he's proven the point so fully that our salvation is free and unearned and received as a gift by his grace through faith in Jesus, that now he has to attack a natural objection. Because if I sit there and five chapters of Romans, some of the best literature in history, The Apostle Paul proves for five chapters that you can't earn, you didn't earn, you wouldn't, couldn't, possibly earn the free gift that is offered you in Jesus Christ. The next natural question is, okay, well then what's all this Christian holiness about and righteousness about? And some Christians have been very confused about it. I had this friend, (laughs) he was so weird. I won't say he was a friend, he was like this guy who was a doctor. And he was a Christian And, and, and he used to say, he said things to, like, um, his idea was that because he loved Jesus, he didn't want to sin, and that was the only reason he didn't sin. He, he once illustrated it for me. He said, you know, if I wanted to, I, I could go and get, get drunk and go to strip clubs like everybody else. I could do that. Jesus died for my sins. But I don't want to because I'm a Christian. And I was like, no, that's not, that's not what we mean, buddy. <laughs> that wouldn't be right. That would be wrong. You know, that doesn't mean God would reject you, but that would be sinful. The Bible's calling you to reject that old life and turn from it. And so Paul's trying to bridge the gap because on the one hand he's saying, you didn't earn it. This is free. There's nothing you can do for it. And then he's constantly in his letters calling people to live righteously. And so the question is, how do these two things, how do they come together Because if if my salvation's free, and if God is so patient, listen, if God still loves me, and he's communicated his love to me so much, if God still loves me, he's infinitely patient with messed up people who need forgiveness again and again and again and again. And that's true for you too. (laughs) Because I know you did. No, I don't. Well, some of you, (laughs) no. So that raises the question, why not go on sinning? And listen to what Paul says. So good. <laughs> he was smacked, as they say in Boston. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because he, he says in Romans 5, he says, he says the more this, the more you sin, the more grace there is. It just abounds. You, just, you can't outrun the grace of God. You can't out the grace of God. He's saying, so should we just keep on sinning and sinning so that we have more grace? Verse 2, by no means... And by no means barely captures it. He's, he's saying, like, may it never be. Like, don't even think that. Don't even say that. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That little phrase there is what he's, the rest of the passage, he's going to be explaining. And his idea is, if you've come to Jesus, yes, you didn't earn it. Yes, your sins, past, present, and future. Most people are afraid to say in future. Because they think you're going to run out and go crazy on a bender. <laughs> you're, gonna like, you're gonna be like 10 seconds later you're gonna be in a disco like, with like, never mind. Um, I just had this whole rave scene. And I don't know why. Do people do that anymore? Even do people that go to raves? I don't know. But um, <laughs> people are afraid to say past, present, and future sins are forgiven because it seems like an encouragement towards sin. Paul's entire argument against that thought is found in this little phrase where he says, we, how can we who died, or this sentence, how can we who died to sin, still live in it. His idea is this, as a Christian, by definition, you died to sin. He's not saying Jesus died to sin. He did, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying we, meaning all Christians, not special Christians who've reached the Jedi level of holiness and got a black belt in super spirituality, all Christians have died to sin. And if you've died to something, a negative thing, an undesirable thing, why would you live in it? And so every single Christian, if you're a Christian, you're here, you've died to sin. And you're like, yeah, but no, man. I haven't. You don't know me. No, you have. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're dead to sin. You may not be enforcing your victorious death to sin. You may not be indulging in all the righteousness that's available to you in Christ, but your status before God and the reality of your Christian soul is that you are dead to sin. It has no it has, it has no mastery or claim over you. has no claim over you. Verse 3. And do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now here's where Paul is using, he is talking about baptism, but he's using it as, as one scholar said, he's using baptism as shorthand. Shorthand for the conversion experience. Why? Because baptism reenacts the major events that took place when you came to Jesus. What does it reenact? It reenacts that your old self died and was buried as if going under the cleansing waters of baptism. As if you were buried under that water. And a new life uh, in Christ has, has arisen and now you're a new person who's come out of that water. You're dead to that old life. You're alive to that new life. The old you is gone. It no longer has claim over you. It screams from the grave every day, but it's an empty scream. It has no authority. The grave that you were laid in, it's not your grave. It's Christ's grave. You were laid alongside Him in His own tomb. That's that's what we're celebrating in baptism. You didn't die in your grave and were buried in your grave. You died and were buried in His grave because the death that you died was the death of Christ on his cross on your behalf. Not only a substitute death, where he died for us, but a representative death, he died as us. Both of those things are true. And so verse three, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And and of course, in the first century, they didn't do what we do. When people came to Jesus, they were baptized usually immediately. And then as years went by, they would make it harder and harder to get baptized. In our point in history, we're somewhere in between. Um, though, uh, though I really love what a lot of the larger churches are doing. Uh, like on Easter Sunday, they just have church and they just got like 20 baptism tanks and they'll just have everybody get baptized right there. It's awesome. <laughs> some, some great stuff. That, that's how they did it in the first century. People would, would come to Christ and get baptized immediately. Now we tend to, uh, uh, for various reasons, we don't do it as often, but we should. So his point being, all the Christians he was writing to had been baptized. There was an exception. You get what I'm saying? So when Paul says you've been baptized into Christ, blah, 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 there's nobody going to be left out who says, well, I've been a Christian a few years and I didn't get baptized. They all would have been baptized. It creates a tension for us because some are listening and say, wait, is this true for me because I haven't been baptized? The answer is yes. Because what he's talking about is not what happened to you in a very positive Biblical ceremony, but what happened to you at the moment you gave your life to Jesus? And what happened to you the moment you gave your life to Jesus? You've been baptized into Christ Jesus, and when you were, you were baptized into his death. baptized the, the Greek word baptizo, it's, it's a, um, what do you call it when you don't translate a word, you transliterate it? It's transliterated, there's a term for it. But the word baptized is, is not a English, an English word, it's a Greek word, it comes from the Greek word baptizo. And I once said to a colleague of mine, oh, you know, to, to baptize means to, uh, to submerge. And he goes, oh, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it really does. It, it can mean to, to, to dip and to something they did. They used to baptize uh, fabrics and to in the ancient world. But one of the key ideas of, of baptism is to be emerged in, uh, submerged in water or in anything else. And then he goes on to elaborate what he means by saying we were baptized into His death. He says, we were buried therefore with Him. Remember I said whose grave it is? It's not your grave, it's His grave. <laughs> when you put your faith in Jesus, this weird uh, timey-wimey thing happens where you become one with Jesus in His death. In, outside of time and space. Isn't that marvelous? He says, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus is hanging on that tree. The sins of the world are laid upon Him. He dies as a substitute sacrifice representing you and I on the cross. So when you put your faith in Him, the death that He died for sin, you now die to sin, no longer its slave, no longer owing it anything, no longer owing God anything. Laid in his grave, he broke out of the grave to resurrection. We break out of the grave so that we can walk in newness of life. And so Paul's answer, when the objection is raised, why not just walk in sin? He says, you died to sin, why would you do that? You, you were united with Christ in his death and resurrection for the purpose of being set free from sin. It's like, it's like graduating from high school, which is a lot like being enslaved to sin. It's like graduating from high school and then saying, well, can I go to class again every day? It's like, how can you who died to high school still go to it? It's the worst government, mind control, horrible food. They don't, they don't teach you anything about doing your taxes or making money. Why? So you could be a worker. You know who invented the school system? The Rockefellers. It's true. Look it up. You know why? This is an aside, by the way, you know why? Not to to create an educated, wealthy country, to create workers. It's true, they engineered the the curriculum so that you'd be good little bees. Okay, anyway, (laughs) see why I need to step out of ministry? It's all in there, it's just, just, I can't not say things anymore, it just comes out. (laughs) It's true. It is. Verse five. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You know what he's saying here? He's saying you died to sin so that you could be set free from its enslaving power but not, or set free from its penalty but also from its enslaving power so you could live a new kind of life. Now please, take the implications. Paul's writing to a group of people saying you need to know this. You need to understand what really happened when you put your faith in Jesus. You died to an old way of life so that you could live a new way of life, a life that's saturated by the Spirit of God and the life of Christ himself. And, what, and did, Jesus, did Jesus look at life and say, man, I wish I could live in, in a state of wretched sin instead of this relationship of freedom and power and righteousness with my Father? Only, only fallen, sinful people say, wow, I wish I could just give in to all of my sinful, destructive urges. <laughs> I gave in to all of my uh, cravings last night. I just, I wouldn't stop eating. I don't know what it was. <laughs> and, and it's like, I don't know why I'm eating this. It looks delicious. But, but, but that sort of, destru- only human beings, my point being this, only human beings in a fallen world follow appetites that lead to destruction. Right? We do things we know, we already know, the taste is sweet, but the impact is negative. How many things does that apply to in our lives? And it doesn't only apply to things covered in whipped cream. I'm getting hungry, man. It don't, doesn't only apply to things covered in whipped cream or things that are um, um, arousing. <laughs> it, it applies to things that we all know are ugly to greed and pride and hate. Somehow we're drawn to indulge in these things. My wife and I got in an argument yesterday. I'm just telling you everything, who cares? Um, and uh, one of the things I find when you get in an argument with your spouse, I don't, somebody tell me if this is, is, is you or not, you get into this like state of consciousness that feels like you're only ever there. You know what I mean? Like you can't remember happiness. You're like Gollum. Like, you can't remember the taste of strawberries. You're, you're like, you're stuck, like, you're stuck, you're like, I really hate this person. I don't even remember liking them, right? You're just like in that place where you can't remember having a good relationship because right now you're so upset. Anybody else, no? You guys are the, you guys are so proud, you won't admit anything. But, uh, but in that state, goodness loses its flavor. Kindness, mercy, forgiveness, which is so pleasant, loses its allure, right? Sin has that destructive way of stirring appetites toward greater sin. Okay, keep following me here. We'll get through it. So uh, let's just keep reading. So if we've been united with him in a death like his, verse five, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now here he says it, ready? We know, remember my point. My point is we need to live a fuller fuller life by knowing that we died. He says we know that our old self was crucified with him. So the person you were before you came to Jesus was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer excuse me so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul is telling you what happened every one of us. He uses this word brought to nothing. I have it in my notes here somewhere. Uh, The term denotes a non-physical destruction by means of a superior force coming in to replace the force previously in effect. Such a cool definition. So there's a force in control and it is displaced and replaced by a new power. That's what this word brought to nothing means. You didn't think all that was in there, right? He says, he says, your old self is brought to nothing. The idea is there's this sinful you that exists and is in control and is in power. And then by the Spirit of God, a new life comes in. And it's, it's directed by and made real by the person of the Holy Spirit. That new influence of the Holy Spirit renders the old life inoperative, ineffective, and puts it out of power. Now, here's the thing. Many of us think that the real power in our life is the craving and the tendency towards sin. Paul's more optimistic than that. He believes that the power of the Spirit in your life is so powerful that the Spirit of God has the upper hand in your life. And he wants you to know that. If you continue fighting sin with the idea that your sinful impulses have the upper hand and God is sort of like knocking at the door going, hey, I forgot my keys, can I come in, can I help? Like he's this little weakling at the door who like sort of would help if he could get in, but he's just out there. No, Paul's vision is the power of conversion, the spirit of God coming into your life is so powerful that it can render that old craving for sin and craving for death and destruction renders it powerless in your life. And then he says this, so that you can no longer be enslaved to sin. It assumes a couple things. It assumes that before you were a Christian, you were enslaved to sin. And it assumes that now, as a believer, you need to know that you're no longer enslaved to sin. So it's possible that, and, and as I said, if you're a believer, you died to sin, that means you're no longer enslaved to sin. I don't care what you're dealing with in your life right now what struggles, what addictions, what frustrations you're going through, you are not enslaved to sin, but you may be living like a slave to sin. It's like Tom Petty said, you don't have to live like a refugee. (laughs) You don't have to live like a slave to sin if you've given your life to Jesus. You don't have to live like a slave to sin. That's not how the song goes, but we're going to sing it. No, I won't do that. Second, live freer by considering or reckoning yourself dead to sin. Verse 7, he says, one who's died has been set free from sin. And then verse 11, he kind of repeats himself a little bit in the next few verses. Verse 11, he takes this argument to its next step, and we're actually almost done. Verse 11, he says, so, so, So everything I just talked about, you're no longer enslaved to sin. You're dead to that old life. The Spirit of God has come in and rendered inoperative and replaced that old power of sin that was controlling. He says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see that next step? He says, here's the theological reality. You're not enslaved to sin. The Spirit of God has come in and displaced that regime in your life. So you must reckon, consider, count yourselves among those who are dead to sin. So that's the second step. Live freer by reckoning yourself or considering yourself dead to sin. I like the word reckoning. That's the old word. Sounds more (laughs) cowboyish. You need to have a little cowboy in your soul who's going to stand up to sin. And so he says, know you're dead to sin, then consider it to be your... So this is the thing, this is a little bit of uh, self-talk. Psychologists love self-talk, it's an important thing. Paul has a step of self-talk in how we overcome sin in the Christian life. We know the theological reality, that's where most people fall short. They They never get a hold of that. They never realize what's been done for them. By the way, the word baptized, it's in what's called a theological passive... The idea here is is not that you baptized yourself, it's that God baptized you into Jesus. It's something God did. You gave your life to Jesus, that means the Father has immersed you in his Son. Has immersed you in this new life that he's provided for you in Christ Jesus. So live freer by considering or reckoning yourself dead to sin. Next, live holier by presenting yourself to God. Let's look at these verses, a couple minutes here. Verse 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So Paul's bringing his argument here. He's saying, well, hey, if we're all forgiven of sin and all these things, then why don't we just go on sinning? And he's saying, someone who's dead to sin needs to know it, needs to consider him and herself dead to sin, and stop it. Stop actively offering yourself over to sinful temptation to fulfill its desires and bring destruction into your life. Stop it. Put your foot down. And it's not put your human foot down by empty human spiritual energy. It's put your foot down by the power of God that's within you to put a stop to this by the living spirit of God who is a consuming fire within you. Did not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but... Present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here's that step. It's not a matter of just walking through your life struggling with sin, struggling with sin, oh God, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, okay. I'll try not, I'll try not to. Uh, Struggle with sin, oh God, I'm so sorry, I'll I'll try not to, I'll try not to. He gives us this step in addition to knowing it, in addition to recognizing and speaking it as a reality in your life, There's this step of presenting yourself. And here's what I have to say about it. Three things about it. We're called to daily dethrone sin by presenting ourselves to God. Dethrone it daily. Not, I'm going to do it right now in an emotional moment and then move on with my life. Daily dethrone sin in your life. How? Do it literally. That is, actually go before God and say, I present myself to you, Lord. I renounce this old way of life that's creeping back in or that I've never really dealt with. I want to live in a new life. I'm renouncing it. Not making promises to never do something again. This is better than that. This is saying, God, I belong to you. I present myself to you. Make that real by the power of your spirit. Do it regularly. We don't live in an environment where this is done once because we live in a sinful, fallen world. It's okay to do it again and again and again. God doesn't get sick of you. Do it willfully. That is, watch your heart. Do you want holiness? Maybe that's where you need to start. Maybe in your heart you don't even want this holiness that God's offering. You ever think of that? Maybe you're not walking in holiness because you don't really want it. You like where you're at. You like being the way you are. Maybe that's what you need to present. Say, God, I don't even want this new life that you give me. I don't know what it looks like, but I don't want it or what I see it. I don't desire it. I need a new desire for holiness in my life. All right, and then you got new tools. These are quick ones. New tools for your new life. Ready? A new way to pray. Paul says, uh, he says, um, uh, Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. A new way to pray. A new way to speak. Watch what he says in Titus. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled. And he goes on. The grace of God, the free gift of God, trains us to renounce ungodliness. What does it mean to renounce? It means to, form. I have a definition here. It's in your notes too. Formerly declare one's abandonment of something. Of a possession, of a position, of a right, whatever it is. So he says the grace of God actually trains us to renounce ungodliness. And so, what does this look like in prayer? When you're presenting yourself to the Lord, say, Lord, I renounce this sin that's in my heart, that's in my life, that I'm craving, that I'm struggling with, that I'm dabbling in. I renounce it as something I don't want. And a new reason to rejoice. And for this, we look at Romans 6 14, the last verse in our passage. Paul gives us this. Promise. Look at this promise. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. You're under this new regime of grace in Christ Jesus. He gives this promise. It's not a threat, it's a promise. It's a, in the future tense, he says, sin will have no dominion over you. He's saying, you, Christian brother and sister in Christ, sin will not have dominion over your lives. That dominion's been broken and put away. You're not cursed to live in your old habits. You're not cursed to live as your old self. It has no dominion over you because you are now under God's grace. Your life is characterized by hope of constant future grace, constant future renewal in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. That's what we have. Thanks for listening. We would love for you to join us for worship this Sunday in New City, New York. For details, go to SaviorCC.com.